This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast brought to you by KTM who are ready to race once again in 2023. And they also have a brand new limited edition beast, the 2023 KTM Super Duke Auror for petrol heads that want a unique way to tackle the track. Check out KTM.com for more info and check out Adam Wheeler for correcting me about how to pronounce the bike. Yeah, just in case uh, we don't have time to edit this podcast, then ladies and gentlemen, it's the KTM 1290 Super Duke Double R or RR. There you go. Let's move on straight to the podcast for this week. We're obviously going to review the Argentinian Grand Prix. We're a few days behind schedule just because of the way that travel constraints are for Neil to get back from Argentina. But Neil Morrison, it's been uh, it's been a full on couple of days for you to get yourself back home. It has, yeah, it has, Steve. Yeah, I don't think uh, putting Argentina a week after a race in Europe is the the best of ideas. But then I think we all knew that whenever the calendar was released um, last year. Yeah, it was a full on weekend, as you said, um, full on trip back home. I think I left my hotel yesterday, or no, two days ago, Monday morning at ten a.m. and I got home last night at one a.m. So it was a uh, yeah, a wild ride. Um, the Argentinian GP can be split into two halves. The first half when you arrive and everything's exciting and people are arriving, there's good atmosphere, there's lots of fun on the streets. And then the kind of the day of race day when everyone goes home and piles of trash are piled up on the street corners and you just, you think, oh, I've got two days of traveling ahead of me. Get me out of here. So uh, yeah, thankfully we got through it. And um, yeah, home now. Yeah, obviously enough, it's been a little bit easier for myself, David Emmett and Adam Wheeler. But uh, David, obviously a Grand Prix weekend is still hectic all the time, no matter where you are. But how was it for you for Argentina? Uh, It was extra hectic because we, uh, Adam and myself, went to Ducati uh, and Bologna on, hang on, that was Thursday morning. So we got there Wednesday night and then uh, back Thursday and then went there Thursday morning and then flew home Thursday night. Um, so it was, um, I think I slept in five, five or six different beds on five consecutive nights. So it was, um, uh, it, it was extremely, it was like being a teenager again. I was going to say, you're just going back to your college days. Obviously for Adam, that's, that's standard fare, but, uh, we're obviously <laughs> going to have the, uh, some of the audio from your interview with, uh, with Ducati as well. What was the big takeaways that you had from that trip? Uh, Basically, the exclusivity of it, Steve, because, you know, we spoke with Claudio Domenicale, the CEO, uh, apparently doesn't give too many interviews. I think journalists have caught him at certain races and got sound bites and quotes from him, but nobody's really had, well, nobody, but relatively few media outlets have had sit-down chats with him. We were lucky enough to get about 35 minutes, I think it was, Dave. So we spoke about how Ducati have kind of morphed uh, their position inside the Audi group. Um, also had their philosophies towards racing, uh, Moto E, of course. So it was all, it was all quite interesting. And then, you know, having a tour around um, the factory uh, just for Dave and I, uh, we'd done it before on, on separate occasions, you know, cause you can roll up there and just pay and, and take the tour. So it was very similar to that, but um, no, it was, uh, it was great. And then we spoke with um, uh, Livio Lodi, who's like the curator of the Ducati Museum. And he was telling us some of the stories behind the bikes, um, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily know. So, yeah, it was a very informative trip. But like Dave said, it was hectic. Um, and one question for Neil, actually, that we, we're sort of cracking on with the podcast. What's your feeling about Termas now? Do you think it's sort of 
this particular Grand Prix, I mean, did you feel there was a vibe there that there is life still in this venue or, you know, maybe the Argentinian GP needs to swap to another place or perhaps we need to go back to Brazil? Was there any kind of sentiment across the weekend that Termas, you know, its days could potentially be numbered? I did get that sentiment, Dad, yeah. Not necessarily because of the, uh, the crowd that were there. It was still as rand as it always seems to be on a Saturday night. The punters were still making as much noise until the, the wee hours of the morning. Um, yeah, R1s and, and GSXRs with trick exhaust were still getting revved to the absolute heavens from 7 p.m. right the way through to 7 a.m. But um, yeah, I, I did hear a few things that um, the, the organizers were not, as in um, Erta and Dorna, were not best pleased with the condition of the track. Um, it was obviously not in the best uh, condition, the, the track surface. They had to do a bit of a cleanup operation on Wednesday, I think Thursday as well, um, with a, a truck. Um, cleaning the surface um, and I think someone from Earth may have gone um, towards the end of last year to kind of say like look guys we need you to improve these things and when we arrived none of them had been had been done so um, yeah I don't know we, we got 70,000 through the gates on Sunday that maybe seemed like a slightly optimistic estimate from from where I was sent but um, yeah I, th- I mean we do need a race in South America but um, eh, Termas it's a great circuit but um, yeah the the condition of the the whole thing wasn't necessarily in, you know, up to world championship level scratch, you would say. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's the shame about it, because it genuinely is one of the one of the very best circuits on uh, uh like on, on the calendar, just because of you know the layout and everything is absolutely conducive to motorcycle racing. It's fantastic. However, uh, it never gets used and it is in the middle of nowhere. Um uh, and you know they, they they don't have regular races, they don't have regular track days or whatever. I've I mean there's been sort of like rumors floating around whether they're true or not, I have no idea, uh that we could go to San Juan Villicum, the same as uh, World Superbike. It would make a lot more sense to actually have the two series at the same circuit, just because um, you know, <laughs> at least you'd have twice as much sort of activity there. And like, you know, Steve, w- what would a MotoGP buy? Uh, well, how would MotoGP suit San Juan Villicum? Uh, well, Villicum's a great facility, but the track isn't great. You know, the Termas track is fantastic, but the facilities aren't great. So if we could almost just take Termas and put it in Villicum, it'd be fantastic. But instead, you end up with a halfway house for both of them. And I like going to Villicum because when you arrive, you're in the middle of the Andes. It looks cool. It looks like nowhere else that we go race. And it reminds everyone in the Superbike paddock of when they used to go to Salt Lake City. And it's a very unique setting. But the track for a MotoGP bike... I, I don't I don't think it would be anything like what we get at Termas, but facilities wise, it would be better in the garages. But again, we were in a tent in the media center as well, so there's drawbacks there too. It's it's one of those situations where you're in a chicken and egg situation, but you have to just wait and see what happens from it. I thought that one of the like obviously we're recording this, like I said, a few days after the race from Termas. And I thought one of the most interesting things is just what's happened within the last couple of hours where Dorna have announced a new chief operating officer. And uh, David, this was this was really big news. Daniel Rosamondo coming in from, he's worked in the NBA for pretty much the last 50, uh, 15 years as their senior vice president for global partnerships and media. So he's been involved in sales, building relations and opening new territories for the NBA. And that's something the NBA are very successful at even though it always seems that their their share of the domestic market in the US is getting dwarfed by the NFL. But in terms of what they're doing on the global scene, they're doing a really good job. So this is an interesting hire. Yeah, I mean, if you think about 
um, how the NBA has expanded across the world, um, it's really surprising. You know, I mean, like it's or it's it's a really positive development because uh, you know the NBA is actually massive in Spain, for example, which which you wouldn't necessarily sort of uh, uh, think it's getting bigger and bigger and more and more and more countries, and that's exactly what what's needed. It's also it's a break from tradition, really, for Dorna because Dorna have traditionally hired. Um, uh, or they've they've centered the company around the group of people who were there right at the start in 1992 when the company was set up um, uh, to take the F1 or the the MotoGP rights uh, originally set up with uh, with Bernie Ecclestone and then uh, split off when Ecclestone acquired the F1 rights and was forced to sell. Um, uh, uh, you know, basically to split, to to uh, to choose between F1 and MotoGP, um, and to hire a non-Spaniard is a big thing, or it, it, even a non-Catalan. Hiring outside of Catalonia is a uh, is a big thing. It's a very Catalan company, um, and it was really, really what MotoGP needed. You know, it needs someone with a with an outside view to examine the processes. We were sort of stuck in. Uh, we were stuck in TV mode, if you like. I always felt that the, the, I'm like Manella Roy did a great job at building up uh, the TV rights and, and the broadcast rights. Obviously, he was helped by having a global superstar of the nature of Valentino Rossi. Um, but I always felt that uh, Manella Roy was the right person to take it to a to a given level. But he never really seemed to understand, you know, like the new media landscape, the internet landscape, the uh, Dawn were were. Uh, it's only really the last sort of couple of years that they've really kicked up um, their um, social media and uh, and that sort of stuff. Really put some effort into that. So um, hopefully, you know, someone coming across from the NBA who are light years away. All American sports are light years ahead of what we're doing. Uh, in Europe, um, I think this is a really interesting move. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, just to correct you there, because he's the CCO, so he's a commercial, um, you know, chief commercial officer, and you know that's important because it affects the marketing side rather than just you know the operational side. It's it's more kind of the the image, uh, the portrayal of MotoGP, and, and like Dave correctly said, I think with Manel, you had someone who had their paws all over the series. Um, you know how it needed to be presented and and what it needed to be in order to earn revenue, and that was one of the best. Uh, in my opinion, it's the best motorsport TV package you can get in terms of the coverage, the information, the presentation, the the various camera angles. I mean, there's true innovation, I think, in the TV product. But you know. Uh, MotoGP, I think, is going through a, something of a generational shift in terms of its management. But also, I think, um, you know, if you want to be global, you've got to think global. And you can't just have um, um, a singular kind of uh, mentality there when it comes to nationalities and inner staff. So I think uh, it's going to be significant. We would like to see how much influence this, you know, particular gentleman can have inside Dorna. Um, you know, and if he can bring a real American sort of vision to it. But again, as Dave mentions, you need to be able to adapt very quickly as to how people are absorbing products and how they're absorbing sports. I don't think more than five years ago, someone would have said, you need to be on a streaming platform. I mean, now if uh, we're all of a certain generation on this podcast and maybe people are listening to it, but, uh, you know, my apartment's littered with DVDs and CDs that, you know, almost don't have a, um, a, a means to be played anymore. So where do we get all our material from? It's from streaming stuff. And that's, um, you know, MotoGP really needs to 
kind of get on board with that and and think you know okay you've got motogp.com but there have to be other ways to reach new audiences and uh hopefully this this will be a step in the right direction yeah, I have to say, Ad, I've got a collection of VHS as well from like 500 Grand Prix days that I, I'm just unwilling to throw out. Maybe it'll turn out like vinyl, do you know what I mean? Like this has been massive resurgence of vinyl uh, in the music thing. Everyone will start watching video on uh, uh, on 640 pixel uh, VHS tapes just for, the, uh, uh, just for the nostalgia value. Does that mean, Dave, that my uh, copy of Doctor Doolittle 2 on DVD could somehow... <laughs> Manage to become valuable again. It could. You'll end up selling that on eBay for ten grand. Yeah, someday, someday. But uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's kick it on to the to the weekend in Argentina as well. Obviously, this was an action-packed weekend when we had Brad Binder coming from the fifth row of the grid to win the sprint, and then Marco Bezzecchi claiming his first uh, first MotoGP race victory as well. But uh, Adam, I'm going to kick it off with you for your moment of the weekend. Uh, very quickly, Pekka Bagnaya's crash. Um, I think it caught him by surprise. He said afterwards he didn't know the cause of it. Uh, he thought he had eradicated these kind of mistakes towards the end of last year. Neil, uh, I mean, you always know much more than all of us when it comes to this sort of thing. I think his last mistake may have been Motegi um, when he crashed out of the race, you know, quite some time ago. You know, it has to be said, a lot of water, a lot of water has passed under the bridge. Um, in terms of MotoGP experience with Peko, you know, going through all that tension in Sepang and then clinching the title in Valencia. So uh, very unexpected, even though he had been suffering with, you know, illness um, in Argentina. Uh, he clearly wasn't up to the competitive level of some of the other Ducatis, Alex Marquez and Marco Bezzecchi, of course, you know, the, the two prominent ones. But I think, you know, that mistake goes to show that, you know, well, we came away, didn't we, from Portugal saying it's going to be a Ducati championship, it's going to be a Peko Bagnaia championship. And, and that just showed that, uh, you know, it's um, it's gloriously unpredictable. Um, here's the thought. What if this is exactly the right time to make that kind of mistake? Because uh, if you do it now, right at the beginning, then it sort of reminds you, oh, yeah, OK, that was the thing I'm not supposed to do. So let's try not to do that in the future. True, uh, but then he's conceded points, hasn't he? I mean, he's not leading the championship anymore. There's only uh, another 703, <laughs> I think 703 points to go. So, yeah, obviously it's going to be tight. No, I mean, I mean, in terms of the bigger picture, Dave, I agree. But, you know, he's conceded maybe a bit of momentum and confidence to Marco Bezzecchi, you know, who's riding his motorcycle from last year. Um, maybe we don't know the full picture and Bagnaia is now shitting himself slightly, thinking maybe in the wet I have something I didn't think is, is as good as I thought it was. I mean, there's all sorts of little um, permutations there. Yeah, obviously, um, Neil, you've got a lot of experience of those mistakes early in in events you're a liverpool fan so uh, you've seen that plenty over the course of the last couple of months but uh, what was your moment of the weekend my moment of the weekend was when uh we had a, a pretty stunning start to the sprint on saturday sprint race sorry div and uh, we had uh, franco morbidelli and uh, brad binder sort of banging bars at the, at the front of the MotoGP gp race and uh i just thought at the time if someone had told me that uh on the grid, those two guys would be at the very front of the race, sort of setting the pace. Then I would have asked them to go and maybe get their head checked somewhere um, at one of the, the local uh, hospitals. Because, um, yeah, we've obviously spoken quite a bit about Franco's uh, travails on this podcast recently. Um, but he was fantastic all weekend. Um, and it was great to see him so aggressive at the front of the, uh, the sprint race. Um, and, uh, yeah, when Brad, I think, passed him at turn nine on turn two, 
sorry, lap two, um, you know, Franco uh, basically tried to retake the the position. And um, yeah, it was just the kind of Franco Morbidelli that we've become accustomed to not seeing over the last two seasons, you could say, really. So um, yeah, good to see Franco back. Great to see Brad up there. And uh, yeah, the, the first laps of the sprint were a, a real treat. Adam, just about Franco, do you think is this the sign that he can turn it all around or is Argentina just so unique that uh, he'll be back to where he has been when we get to Coda? Uh, Hart says, um, Hart wants to say yes, uh, just because of the, 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 the personality that he is. Um, but mm, the head says no. I suspect, you know, I, I don't think Franco is a great fit with the M1. So, yeah, I, I just think he's going to have the same sort of struggles and going from Argentina straight to a track like Cotta. Uh, if he's again setting top five pace there, then maybe he has really turned a corner. But I suspect it's just a, a brief, brief flash in the pan, unfortunately. Dave, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Well, my moment of the weekend was uh, Fabio Quartararo getting pushed wide by Taka Nakagami in that race because it was um, sort of illustrative, really, of what Quartararo's sort of problem has been uh, all year. He just hasn't been able to qualify on the uh, sort of in the front couple of rows, which is where he needs to be to be competitive. Um, what happens then is you, you end up in those sort of situations. He got pushed all the way to the back of the uh, uh, back of the field. Um, and if you look at his pace, his pace was absolutely phenomenal in the second half of the, of the race. He was um, pretty much almost as fast as Marco Bezzecchi, um, uh and really, really capable of closing. You know, he he, uh, he was down in, what is it, 15th or 16th or something and ended up uh, uh, ended up 6th, 5th, um, which is just, you know, a really, really strong result. But he's starting in the middle of the, he's starting in the middle of the field and if he wants to really like stage a proper uh, a title challenge then he has to start starting from much closer to the front Dave, it's obvious that uh, Bezaki winning is the big story from the weekend that we're going to cover a little bit more later on. But your big talking point for the weekend kind of takes us nicely from uh, Franco and Fabio. It, well, yeah, exactly. Because uh, and also to an extent to the state of the of the circuit that um, uh, that Neil was talking about earlier. Um, this is a very low grip track. The thing is. The, um, the the problem is is that it doesn't get used much. It hasn't been resurfaced. I think it got resurfaced um, uh, when it when we first started using it, which I think is about two thousand and thirteen, fourteen, something. Yeah, two thousand and fourteen hasn't been resurfaced since then. Uh, the surface is getting very very worn, um, and there's no grip. Um, and of course, it just doesn't get used, and because it doesn't get used, there's never any rubber on it. Now they cleaned the track beforehand; uh, they had uh, trucks going around blowing uh, all the dirt off of it, and that made a big difference on the Friday. But you immediately saw that Franco Morbidelli uh, was looking really, really strong, and Fabio was was sort of struggling. And the difference between those two is sort of illustrative of the problem with Yamaha at the moment. That bike is fantastic when there's grip, um, and um, Franco Morbidelli is really, really good because he's such a smooth rider. He is much better when there is no grip. 
And so he was able to exploit the fact, because like, if you look at his pace in any race, he always struggles in the first few laps when there's no, uh, you know, when he can't get, um, uh, when there's a lot of grip from the tyres. That's also one of the reasons he qualifies quite badly. But then you look towards the second half of a race and all of a sudden his pace is really, really strong. He ends up being sort of among the faster riders there. But the trouble is, you know, you're down in 13 and it's really difficult uh, to, to pass at that point. Here, when you've got a, at a track where there is low grip, you know, you never have the grip. You never have the problem with, you know, trying to force the uh, force the bike to turn um, because you have to be smooth. Being smooth, you're, you know, you're being rewarded by being smooth. Um, so, like, he really benefited from that, certainly, certainly in the sprint race um, and in the qualifying because, you know, he was qualifying at the front so he could start from the right place. Uh, and you saw him going backwards a little bit during the, in the full race. But, um, uh, again, it's better to start at the front than go backwards than start at the back and try and claw your way forwards, as we saw uh, with Fabio Quattararo. Yeah, because, Neil, on Friday, when you were talking to, uh, to Franco, he was talking in terms of, I want to be on the front two rows of the grid. And we all kind of rolled our eyes a little bit at it. And then, sure enough... He was able to go out and do what he had set out as his target. And uh, for Morbid Ali, it was the foundation of the weekend. And it is one of those situations, like David was saying there, about if you start at the front, you have much more of a chance of staying at the front rather than having to come through the pack. Yeah, I was almost at the stage of writing Franco off and thinking, you know what, I don't think he's going to even last the season. Just looking at, not just not just his results, because they were pretty bad in Portimao, but um, his whole demeanour, um, he just looked lacklustre. He looked completely burned out um you know he wasn't able to even to muster a kind of a a response to to any of the questions we were asking him and um you know dave sort of mentioned that he, he thought he looked like someone that was having you know issues with with mental health and that's obviously true like if you're having bad results like i guess you can get yourself into a right hole and things are looking very very bad very negative um but i, I came away from portimao thinking the, the exact same thing um, but yeah, it was it was great to see him just looking a lot more like like his old self on the track, um, and you could just see that he gradually was gaining a bit of confidence. I mean, the fact that he he sort of dived under, I think it was uh, I think it was Alex Marquez in both the races at Turn One um, on the sprint, and then in the main race on Sunday. Like just even the fact that he was trying to do that, trying to get in amongst the Ducatis, was a sign that. Okay, he's found something. He's found a bit of confidence again, um, and uh, you know it was great to see. Um, I, I really enjoyed Matt Oxley's uh, blog that he wrote this week, where he was looking at some of the, you know, the memorable quotes Franco's made when he is on song, and he is—he's a great character, I think, to have in the class when things are going well, and he does open up a bit and talks a bit about about life, about you know, he's one of the few riders on the grid who also has a, a perspective of what's going on in the world beyond motorcycles, which I think is, is very welcome. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was great. I'm, like Adam, I sort of am hesitant to, to say that he's, he's back completely because um, uh, I don't think Kota's been a great track for him in the past. Um, but um, for this weekend, you know, it was, it was great that he was up there. And I think, you know, even, Fab, even though Fabio had a tough weekend, there were signs in both races that, um, you know, if Fabio can get his base set up in place, um, the Yamaha can be a decent package this year. I mean, in the sprint, we saw Franco repeatedly coming onto the back straight ahead of the Ducatis, 
you were thinking he's going to get smoked here and he would just about hold on and was able to defend into turn five. Um, and that's a, over a 1.1 kilometer back straight. So, um, you know, he was full of pra for praise for with for um, Luca Marmoni, the uh, engineer that they hired, who you, I think had worked with Aprilia before, worked in Ferrari uh, F1 for working on, on Yamaha's engine. Um, and, you know, there were signs in that race that, um, yeah, if the Yamaha, if they can, get their heads around it and get the kind of the, the base setting that you know there is an engine there which can compete in in big fights yeah i mean i don't want to be too pessimistic about morbidelli i mean i don't think we should undervalue him i mean he's a former world champion a former grand prix winner in, in the premier class um i just think it's been a bit of a mismatch you know with him and the yamaha over the last 18 months and you know maybe him more than any other rider in MotoGP, you have to wonder what could he do on another motorcycle? Um, what would he do on, you know, a Grassini Ducati, for example? Uh, so, I mean, Neil's observations about his character and his contribution are spot on. But um, related to, to Franco's performance and what he's able to do in Argentina and also your comments about the track, Dave, do we perhaps uh, attribute far too much kind of importance or, you know, critical conditioning towards qualifying? Because if Morbidelli's saying on Thursday that his number one goal from the weekend is to be on the first two rows, and then you see, say, the KTMs, you know, Brad Bidner comes from almost the end, well, the end of the fifth row to win the sprint. Um, Jack Miller's also eating up positions from 16th to, I think, to finish 6th or 7th on Sunday. Um, you know, perhaps there is, uh, you know, the possibility that qualifying is not the be or an end or that there is solutions to, to make serious gains. OK, if you qualify in 16th, then, you know, perhaps your chances of victory are going to depend on other racing incidents. But, you know, I think it's uh, I, it was for me, the most refreshing thing about the sprint race result was the fact that MotoGP riders actually can get a result from anywhere on the grid. And, you know, with some luck. Um, a little bit of uh, bravado on the first lap. It was, you know, that's, I think that added to the excitement. But I think most of that ad comes from the fact that the sprints show us that you can overtake in MotoGP. The problem with it is in the feature length races in the Grand Prix, you can't because you have to manage the race so much in terms of tyres, fuel, whatever you're looking at. And I think that's probably why you tend to see, or we will tend to see some some changes during the sprints. We see it the same in the Super Pole race and Superbikes where lots of riders are able to get themselves into the fight because you're only having to do it for 10 laps in Superbikes. So yeah, but, um, everyone Steve Binder didn't kill tires. Binder didn't kill his tires on one lap in the sprint. You know, if he did the same exact thing, oh, it was raining on Sunday, but if he'd done the exact same thing on Sunday, he would have been maybe fine for the podium with race pace. Who knows? I mean, it's it's not well. What the riders say is uh, like it's all about qualifying, but it's not just about qualifying. It's also about the start, like getting a good start. That start by uh, Binder in the sprint race was absolutely phenomenal, uh, and a lot of it is um, instinct, knowing where to go, knowing what to do, just positioning yourself right. Sometimes there's a little bit of luck as well in that no one sort of swerves, uh, you know, swerves across you and doesn't block your path through. Um, and it's about willingness for risk, especially the sprint race. What we know that the way to succeed in the sprint race is by being willing to take risk. Um, so I think that's really going to help um, certainly, you know, a rider like Brad Binder and 
once Mark Marquez comes back, a rider like Mark Marquez, if the if, if the bike will cooperate, um, I don't think you can say anything about overtaking in wet races because the 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 speed differential or the the, the pace differential in sprint races is so big. I mean, you know, you're seeing variations in lap times of three or four seconds um, of, of, between individual riders, and so you know what looks like what would normally be a big gap in a uh, in a dry race. Um, would it, it is it, it, an easily manageable uh, gap in in a wet race. If you look at what you know, Jean Zarco did, I and mean, we'll talk about that later. But if you look at what Jean Zarco did, I mean, Zarco came back from a long way just because you know you can manage your tires and be a second a lap quicker than uh, than someone else. He, there, there's just no way you can be you know a second a second and a half faster than someone else in a dry race. We're going to take a quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we'll talk about Marco Bezzecchi's performance on Sunday. Renthal Street Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and KTM. So we've uh, talked a little bit about... Uh, the sprint. Let's talk about the big race. Let's talk about what we saw on Sunday because Marco Bezzecchi's performance was really impressive to take his first MotoGP race victory in such style. And uh, Neil, what did you make of it? Yeah, pretty impressive, Steve. Um, I uh, I was not exactly sure what to make of Bezzecchi last year. I was very much in the camp of how much of it is the bike and how much of it is the rider. Um, because what he did in the junior classes, yeah, he had a great year in Moto3 in 2018. Um, but, you know, there were other riders that I thought were more impressive than him in Moto2, like Remy, like Raul, uh, especially in that 2021 year. Um, and when people were sort of saying that, oh, yeah, he's the next big, the big star coming through in MotoGP, I wasn't exactly sure. But I have to say just the way he managed the weekend as a whole was was very, very impressive. Super fast in, in the dry. Um, you know, uh, Brad Binder defended brilliantly in the sprint. Um, but had that race been a, a one lap longer, it surely would have been Bez's. Um, I think Alicia Spargo said on Saturday that if Bezeki got a clean start, he could have won that race by three or four seconds in the dry. And then he performed like he did on Sunday where he just... Um, yeah, took off, made the others look silly and didn't really make any mistakes that we could see. Um, I mean, it was a, a clinical, flawless performance. Um, you know, and a guy that's just in the second race weekend of his second season in MotoGP. So, um, yeah, it was it was really seriously impressive. Um, I thought it was interesting listening to Jorge Martin on Saturday night where he was saying that they needed, him and his team needed to go and look at Bezeki's data because they were struggling so much with rear grip and they were wondering what he was doing with his riding style to be able to to get it hooked up in those low grip situations. Um, and yeah, I always think that's quite telling when you have more experienced guys saying that they need to check, you know, the the, the less experienced guys' data. So um, yeah, Bezeki was was fantastic, deserved deserved to win. Um, and I was looking at the championship. I mean, he could have had it not been for Alicia Spargro pushing him wide at turn three, I think on the first lap of the sprint in Portugal, he probably would have been on the podium in every race so far this year in all four races, which is really some going. Um, finds himself leading the championship, obviously. And um, yeah, I'm starting to th come around to the thinking that um, Bezeki could be what Bastianini was last year. You know, the occasional victor in the class, the kind of the thorn in the side of the factory Ducati guys throughout the year and someone that maybe could finish in the top five of the championship 
maybe the top three. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm getting a bit too excited here. But um, yeah, there was there's certainly a lot to be positive about for both him and the VR46 team. I think it's a great shout, Neil. But I still think there's still an element of that. Is it the bike or the rider? You know that you were identified last year. I mean, we cannot forget the Bezeki's on the title winning machine um, from 2022. Uh, you know, I can remember interviewing Cameron Bobier when he was trying to get to grips with Moto Two, and he said that the way Bezeki was able to pick up the bike um, and just drive forward. I mean, he he was staggered by you know his technique in doing that. And there is almost a, like a Bastianini esque. Um, it's good that you referenced him because I agree that the way to preserve tire, to use the tire, um, it's a kind of like a technique that's sort of way beyond his experience level, as you say. Uh, I do, you know, I, I from the crashes in Moto Three, we saw raw speed. Um, from some of the uh, underperformance, I guess you could say, in Moto Two, I do question whether Marco has the the mentality to, to really be like a championship leader and pull it all out in, in MotoGP. But, you know, that's just part of the learning phase, I guess. I mean, you mentioned that Martin wanted to look at the data. So did Luca Marini. Um, you know, you passed through his media debrief to us on Sunday for the Paddock Pass podcast note show. And, it, you know, Marini, from his dialogue, it almost sounded like he was smiling. You know, it was kind of like a wry acknowledgement that he needed to go and check what his teammate was doing uh, to really work out how he was able to forge some sort of advantage there. Yeah, I can assure you it was not a smile. Um, and he's been asked about Pisecki in recent weeks. It's been a real sort of grimace. And his, I was going to choose, I was almost going to choose Marini's, um, he was asked to praise Marco on Sunday uh, after the race. And I was going to choose that as my moment of the weekend, but I thought I would spare it because his uh, sort of, his compliment that came through gritted teeth was really, it was quite something. Yeah, know, but he's... Such, such an intelligent guy. <laughs> He, he was only willing to give about like five words. Yes, I'm happy. But he's an <laughs> he's a nice guy, you know, and I think he's uh, quite polite in that in that way. Um, so I think he's prepared to give credit where it's due. But can I also add, Steve, that having put Marco Bezecchi into my fantasy team at the last minute, I absolutely love him. So I think he's great. <laughs> yeah, um, I had him there as well. Lad. Don't worry. Um, uh, the parallel with Bastianini is quite good because again you know what advantage do the Mooney VR46 riders have they have the the championship winning bike you know they don't there's nothing to learn Um, the the data from last year is all pretty much uh, still applicable Um, they didn't have very much to do in terms of testing Uh, they were pretty much ready to go so yeah I mean like they didn't have much preparatory work to do they could just get on a race I think um, you know it's obviously VR46's first victory in MotoGP in just their second season and um, yeah just to quickly mention I'll touch on them I think obviously they've got the the good uh, the good luck to have Ducati machinery there's no question that that is the 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 major factor in their success here but I also think they've been quite smart with how they've placed certain personnel Um, they took advantage of Valentino Rossi's retirement to take some of his crew and put them in the team you know Matteo Flamini is now he was Rossi's uh, data engineer for years and years and years he's now Bezecchi's crew chief David Munoz who was um, Rossi's crew chief in the final couple of years of his career is now working with Marini um, I've seen they've recruited one or two names from Suzuki over the offseason as well so I think they've been pretty smart with how they've placed certain personnel within their team um, and yeah you have to say it's a, it's a pretty impressive start for those guys um, they, they said that they they you know they could have done uh, two things basically they could have gone out and tried to sign riders or they could have just um, you know, basically believed in the guys that they were bringing through from from the academy in in Moto Two, and that's that's the kind of course that they've taken. So, so far, it's paying off. 
Neil, you've kind of skirted around it as well. So is it the bike? Because this is the bike that put all three riders <laughs> on the front row of the grid, the three podiums spots in uh, in the big race on Sunday. The bike is the best bike on the grid, and we see it where everyone that jumps onto it makes a big step forward. So is it the bike, or can it be the bike and a rider having a great day? Because that's what it looked like to me on Sunday. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the latter, Steve. What you said, yeah, for sure, it's the bike. Um, you know, the Ducati is the the pick of the bunch at the moment, um, and that was the first time that three satellite machines from this from different teams uh, with the same manufacturer have been on the podium in MotoGP since I think the first race in 1996. Um, so yeah, the the sort of the the strength and depth that Ducati have in their satellite teams is ridiculous. Never mind adding in the factory guys. Um, so yeah, I don't think you know if Marco Bezzecchi had come up to to MotoGP on a KTM or a Honda, there's no way he would be in this position now. No way. But he still managed to be the best Ducati, and you know it's not as if um, the guys on the Grissini team or the or the Pramac team or the factory team are, are are idiots in the conditions that we had at the weekend. So you know you have to you have to say fair play. Yeah, no, I, I only say it just because for me my big moment of the weekend was to see Alex Marquez put it on pole. Because, again, we've seen flashes from Marquez. I think back to those couple of wet races in 2020 and Aragon and, and Le Mans and, and a few good performances there. You saw that there was some talent there for him on the, on the big bike. And then we've really been able to see it since the start of his switch to Ducati as well. But Adam, what about you? What was your big talking point? I just wondered what you guys thought of the, uh, the reduced races. I mean, if you're going to... If you're a Moto2 rider... Um, you know, it just reminded me very much the situation. I think it was in uh, Thailand last year. Uh, well, I think Toby, Tony Arbolino also won that. The Moto2 race, I think, was due to run 23 laps uh, originally. Uh, was narrowed down to 14. You think, you know, for this uh, championship, this series, these dedicated teams in that particular category, even for Triumph, you could say. Uh, why, you know, you're traipsing all the way to, you know, uh, Termas de Rio Hondo, um, and you get 14 laps to, to compete. Uh, is it fair? Um, is it just a natural consequence of having to prioritize MotoGP? I, um, I, I've just seen varying kind of opinions on social media and, and I wondered, you know, what you guys thought about it because, um, I mean, I didn't have a problem. I thought 14 laps of motor two was, was fair enough. I mean, it was almost a sprint for those guys. Uh, and I do subscribe to the argument that, you know, long races don't necessarily need to be longer just for the sake of it. Um, but you know, I can understand why some motor two fans or riders or teams or sponsors or whatever could feel cheated. Uh, TV is God. I mean, it's as simple as that. You know, like the, the 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 race, the start of the or well, the entire weekend is conditioned around uh, the two p.m. start slot for motor for the MotoGP race uh, on Sunday afternoon, uh, and the uh, what is it? I think one thirty start for the uh, for the build-up show. Um, so yeah, they just want to get everyone out. They want to get everyone uh, off the track, have it clear. Uh, and not have a delay because having a delay is a massive problem for TV. It's also when it's a wet race um, because you know wet races just physically take a lot longer than than the than dry races. Uh, and even just like I know the the overrun. I think when I was with Eurosport, there was a couple of times where we had sort of like a problem at the start and then uh, a wet race, and then we were 
having to wrap up really really quickly because there were they they were basically switching to cycling or switching to something else or switching to tennis uh, at 3 p.m. Um, and yeah the, the the TV schedule dictates everything does is it fair not really no but then you know in an ideal world everyone would get their full length race but we you know you don't live in an ideal world you live in a race with commercial realities which is why they've hired this uh, nice chap from the NBA to sort it all out you can just tell that Dave's a motorcycle journalist because he didn't say we live in a world. He said we live in a race. That's what it's like. <laughs> uh, David Emmett's head. Uh, yeah, I think the official reason was basically Moto, Moto 2 didn't have any um, full wet, uh, dry, or sorry, full wet time on uh, the track through free practice or practice as it's now called. Um, and therefore, I think they wanted to give them a couple of extra laps. On They give them, I think, three siding laps at the start um, before they formed the grid. Um, just basically to understand what the conditions were like. But um, yeah, I spoke to a couple of, I mean, the guys that finished on the podium, obviously they had good races, so they weren't too fussed about it. They said, nah, didn't make much of a difference. We don't care. But um, speaking to another couple of the guys that didn't finish on the podium, um, you know, they were bemused by it. And I think there's a few people in Moto2 that are under the impression that they're, um, yeah, they're, they're kind of, clearly being treated um, well on the priority list currently. Yeah, all of these official explanations, if anyone wants to know about all these official explanations, what they need to do is look up the phrase post hoc rationalization. I think uh, for me, one of the big things from it as well is that when we get back to Europe, obviously you can understand the time schedules whenever they're, they're built at the start of the season, they're built on the premise that they're the same everywhere we go. But one of the things for me that's really interesting is when we get back to Europe, the Red Bull Rookies Cup gets a lot of track time. They get two races. I think, you know, they end up being probably about two thirds of a Grand Prix distance. So they get a lot of track time, including their practice and qualifying time as well. And that's time that arguably for the world championship classes, they could probably do with. And uh, obviously you want to have the Rookies Cup there. But uh, it is probably one of those things that you need to look at and see, you know, the the value of having that much track time allocated for them compared to, like you said, Adam, the the teams in the Moto Two and Moto Three World Championships who missed out on a warm up because of the way that the schedule has changed as well. Yeah, I think uh, also, I mean, you could say Moto Two is not that important, but strategically for a lot of the brands, it is. Uh, you can see by the way companies and manufacturers are branding um, Moto2 teams and then motorcycles, uh, you know, everything from like a, a Gas Gas Triumph to KTM, uh, Yamaha, um, you know, people are switching onto the kind of development worth of Moto2. So I don't think you can really dismiss it, you know, like I say, the class has its fans and it has its detractors. But uh, but your point about the, the scheduling is good, Steve. Um, you know, I think Red Bull rookies tend to squeeze around. If I'm not mistaken, I mean, Neil, again, might know better because, you know, being on Moto3 duty, but in Portimao, I think the Red Bull rookies are out pretty early. Um, it was around about eight eight thirty a.m. You know, the, those guys are already doing laps, and then Moto E, of course, cranks up as well from Le Mans, the first round there. Uh, those guys have been testing actually this week in Barcelona, and um, you know, Dave and I uh, spoke to you know Domenicali and Ducati about the Moto E project. So keep an, an eye out for some of those uh, sound bites in a, in a future pod. But uh, yeah, there's there's still plenty of stuff going on around the track. 
What about in terms of our winners and losers from uh, Argentina as well? Adam, I'm going to come to you first. We'll go in alphabetical order for the winners. And uh, who was your big winner? Uh, KTM slash Gas Gas, just for the spectacle. Uh, I love the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Binder was buried deep in the grid, but managed to be a protagonist. Um, the scenes that we saw the KTM in the KTM pit and the rest of the crew celebrating, that's their seventh checkered flag. Um, in MotoGP now, the winners of the second ever sprint. And I think it shows that that motorcycle is is nowhere near like the finished product. I don't think they're stuck in a rut. Um, we know that KTM are one of the European manufacturers that can react very quickly. They can bring new developments to, to MotoGP, um, whatever kind of philosophy they have towards using the race team as a testing base. Uh, it does seem they're running a little bit behind this year. Um, they had a lot of work to do in Sepang and that's still rolling on. But I think the competitiveness of Jack Miller already I mean, I said give him half a season before he's actually showing something and it's been a lot quicker. Um, and the way Binder is able to to use that motorcycle, I think they've made incredible strides, you know, session by session because Binder has been nowhere on, on the two Fridays, um, you know, in both, both uh, Grand Prix so far. So I think, you know, you have to, for the simple fact that they were a winner um, in Argentina, then, you know, they're also my winner as well. And Augusto Fernandez, a quick shout out to him, Steve, because finishing 11th, um you know second race uh how much different is the bike compared to what ralph fernandez and remy gardner had of course that's something we'll always you'll always need to look at when you're comparing rookies um but to sort of finish 11th and ride in a very mature way i know fernandez is winning a lot of fans inside uh the ktm group and effort at the moment purely for his mindset and the way he's going about it uh, so, you know, um, there's been speculation that his seat's already in jeopardy with Pedro Acosta looking so, you know, um, on the way to MotoGP. But uh, Fernandez did a fantastic job. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot more to see from him this season. Yeah, he only ended up less than a second from a top 10 finish as well. Really impressive in the West. Um, David, what about you? Who was your big winner from the weekend? Um, my big winner was um, uh, Alex Marquez because he got back on the podium again and he you know he, he's this is his second race on a uh, on um uh, on a ducati uh, he gets a pole position um he gets he just has you know a, he had a strong race in the first race he had a strong race in the second race um he looks really really competitive and he looks like, like i said when i was at the um, uh, both at the Portimao test and I think also the race I went out and actually watched trackside and Alex Marquez just looks so comfortable he just looks you know completely at home on that bike like he's really enjoying it um, obviously he got a lot he came here for a lot of criticism when he went to Honda he came in for a lot of criticism last year when the uh, when the results were just not coming whatsoever uh, but then they weren't coming for any anyone on a Honda um, and he's he's really proving his critics his critics wrong. He had a just an absolutely outstanding weekend, and you know it, it promises uh, a lot more. Neil, what about you? Who was your big winner? Uh, I'm going to look down to Model Two for my winner and say uh, Jake Dixon because he scored a podium finish, um, and actually has had a pretty solid start to the season, um, and I think it's in quite exceptional circumstances really I mean he was away from home um, for I think more or less three weeks uh, he obviously had a bit of time at home I think after Portugal but his wife was expecting uh, their first kid um, I think her the due date was after 
uh, the day after the Portuguese Grand Prix, um, but that didn't happen. So he had to go to Argentina, um, knowing that he was probably going to miss the birth of his uh, his first child. And um, yeah, that happened on, on Saturday night. And I think it's, it's obviously like a pretty difficult thing to deal with, not just to be away from that, but also to, to maintain your concentration, to not get overly emotional or overly excited or overly down in that time. Um, you know, I think it, it's... it's, it's uh, you know, it takes a quite a lot to, to keep it on the straight and narrow. And um, yeah, Jake managed to do that. So um, he was saying after the race on Sunday that he reckons, you know, he feels now he can kind of attack. It's almost like something's been lifted from his shoulders. Um, and yeah, to come away from the start of the season with a sixth place and a third, decent ride in the wet. He feels he could have maybe won that race, but for the amount of uh, visibility issues he was having later on with dirt getting kicked up onto his visor, um, you know, I think it's a it's a really good start to the year. So, uh, Neil, did the Dixon story make you all broody? Broody? Uh, no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. I love the prospect of a nice high-pitched Morrison Jr. But uh, for me, my big winner from the weekend, I'll go with the actual winners from the Grand Prix. I'll go with uh, the VR46 team because, Neil, you actually had the chance to catch up with Ucho as well after the race. Yeah, there was a party atmosphere. Obviously, Steve down in uh, the VR46 garage, they were screaming and shouting a good hour and a half, two hours after the race had finished. Um, and obviously, first race win in MotoGP um, is a pretty major achievement. And they had two riders on the podium on Saturday in the sprint, which is another pretty impressive achievement for a satellite squad. Um, yeah, and I managed to catch up with uh, Uchiwa Solucci. He was, the, I think, the sporting director of that team um, on Sunday. He was holding back the tears while he was trying to think of the words to, to kind of say to me. Um, and yeah, we can play that audio now. The feeling now comparable to when you won before with. But I, sp I spoke before with Wally, it's different, but uh, today I have the same feeling, more or less, because uh, but because it's different, but uh, it's a big, big emotion because this project started from 2014 with Moto 3, Moto 2, it's the same guys, more or less, and uh, I, I give all my experience. Uh, I give up 100%, uh, not me, but uh, everybody. And uh, see Bezecchi and Marini, yesterday also Marini the podium, today Bezecchi won. At the second year, uh, we are first in the championship. First in the come team, bah, uh, it's like a dream for me. Now, now to, to stay calm, to, to remain at the, the top level, the concentration, because for sure it's not easy for me, but also for, for, for the guys. But anyway, now we need to... To are happy, to are happy because uh, because I'm, I'm very happy. I want to say thank you because it's very important to Ducati, but not because uh, like Ducati, because it's very good bike, good project, and the work with this bike is more easy than the than uh, than the working with other bike. And uh, thank you to to Darinia and uh, to our partner. What was the secret to go from new team in MotoGP and uh, leading the championship just after one year? I mean, a lot of passion. Right. Uh, a lot of passion. Have a good, have a good rider with like, like Bezecchi and uh, Marini. Our rider is from uh, Academy for many, many years. I, we take Bezecchi is like this, Marini a little bit before. And uh, for that, is uh, ancora più bello. Come si dice ancora più bello? It's even better. Even better. Because uh, we don't... Uh, we, the other team, I don't was spoke bad about the other team, but the other team take the best one. Ah, yeah, him take. Yeah. We not never pros. No, we, we need to 
to our former former academy, no? Sure. And uh, for me, is a little bit uh, special for me, sure. more yeah. special. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, some really intelligent additions with uh, Munoz and uh, with uh, Flamini, you know, with yeah. the two crew chiefs. I mean, this but, seems to. Yeah, David, um, David uh, and uh, Matteo is very good. Good ship is also bad. Uh, a relationship with yeah. was the meeting together yeah. we could we we could divide all the data and for me this one is a secret this is good because uh, with Valley we work like this so we want to continue in this direction uh, and, and nothing and just finally about Bez, I mean it's uh, yeah ah. it's quite impressive how quite he, impressive is uh, is a cavallo passo in italiano si dice <laughs> credi horse is <laughs> 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 fantastic guys because guy because Marco, when you speak with him, eh, he tried to, to say, Marco, not to make like this, like this. He, 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 he understand, he, he look in the eyes and they say, okay, it's okay, bravo, bravo, okay, vale. And uh, it's special work with him because, uh, because he's fantastic. Sorry, I'm a little bit emotional. I oh, know what I said, no worries. Yeah. Sorry. Can you remember the first time with Marco when you met him? Yeah, for sure. When I call, the first time I called the father of Marco, he said, please, uh, I'm Uso from the Air 46. The father said, yeah, what's happening? I want to speak with you, with, with, your, with Marco. Please come in the, the, my office. Marco Caim is very, very young, uh, piccolo. Uh, come, please, Marco, you, we have a new project, uh, the Nicole Academy. Uh, please come with us. You say, yeah, but we are through, very emotionato. Uh, it's a special moment for me. And I remember also last year when I let us at the middle of 21, I asked to, to him, Marco, next time, next year we do Team MotoGP, probably. You come with us? He said, yes. But he yeah, had the offer also of the other team, but the other team already here, no? We did a lot of spin, you, you say, because I'm a manager and, and the team, so you have also the offer from dinner then. I want to stay with the with the F56 with the, uh, our team. Okay, okay. Uh, it's good. Oh, trust in us, the VR in Marco, Marco in VR. Sure, sure. Yes, it's been good cultivation. Absolutely, yeah. And just one final question, yeah. uh, uh, What's possible for the rest of the season? I mean, Marco said uh, the aim for this year was to win a race. I don't know. Now he's won a race. No, now, now for me is they arrived the the, the 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 critical moment. It's a good moment for sure, but not easy to, man to manage because. Uh, we don't have a lot of experience. We have experience more to do, but uh, here is quite different. I don't see. For sure, uh, I speak a lot with the guys uh, when we arrive in Austin. For stay calm, remain in this concentration, uh, and after we see what's happening. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Time to celebrate now. Grazie. Ciao. Yeah. That's great stuff, Neil, and uh, good to be able to get uh, a little bit of a quote in from Ujo after that performance. I'll come straight back to you, though, Neil. You can have first choice of your losers from the Argentinian Grand Prix. Pretty obvious one, Repsol Honda. I mean, we came to Argentina uh, without Marc Marquez. They had just one rider. Uh, Joan Mayer then proceeded to have the absolute weekend from hell. He was last in qualifying, um, struggling like you wouldn't believe, um, and struggling really badly in, in the dry compared to Rins and Nakagami on the LCR bikes. Uh, just kind of was at a loss to explain why he was so far back. And then he had a crash in the, the first lap of the sprint. Um, I think he uh, he made minor contact with a rider ahead and that caused him to have a huge high side. And uh, yeah, he came down, uh, hit his head, bad concussion. And I think he uh, had a big, 
bang on his hip and his ankle as well. So it was just awful, really. Uh, just a, a terrible weekend. And um, I think that the second time in, what, three years that Honda has had no riders on the grid after Valencia 2021. Um, and you know, this bike has ended the careers of Jorge Lorenzo. It nearly ended the career of Paul Espargaro. It's put Mark Marquez under the surgeon's knife more times than he would care to admit. And, uh, you know, the same now has happened to Joan Mir. And um, it's just a, it's a pretty desperate situation for them at the moment. Yeah. And uh, David, what about you? Who was your big loser? Um, I'm going to surprise uh, well I'm going to take this a little bit differently than others my big loser was uh, Joan Zarco and the reason it's Joan Zarco is because he had such a fantastic race um, uh, in the Grand Prix um, he was incredibly strong he was really really fast in the second half of the race and he still managed to come up short you know he, he gets on the podium uh, but again, I mean, the, 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 there's just no doubt that he was the fastest rider on the grid in the in the second half of that race. And if it had got up to speed in the sort of you know a little bit earlier, then maybe he, he could have challenged for the win. But he found a um, he found a way to not win a race again. And you start suspecting that this is going to be sort of the story of his MotoGP career. Um, he's such a fantastic rider when he's on it. He's so controlled and the way he sort of caught uh, Morbidelli, caught Alex Marquez and just sort of sliced straight past him was very, very impressive. Um, but he still found himself, what, four, five, six seconds behind um, Marco Bezzecchi. So, uh, uh, you know, all of that for some nice silverware, but they, it must be frustrating to not get there. Yeah, and I think that's his 16th podium on MotoGP, his 11th second place finish. Um, he is now by far by some distance the, uh, the 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 most successful rider in terms of podiums that um, has not actually won a premier class he's, race he's the most mamola rider ever yeah <laughs> the most colin edwards rider ever actually yeah, he's colin yeah, edwards right. is second on that list well i mean finding a way not to win dave i mean that's uh quite a good phrase yeah mamola actually won a race won several won many what about you ad who was your big loser um mine is two-pronged steve first of all the aprilias um you know going one two two one both factory riders on friday and then just never really finding the groove in mixed conditions even further on on you know they suddenly went from being able to handle the low grip to then uh, when the the track surface got a little bit more grippy, just kind of losing any of that competitiveness. I mean, Maverick Mignales was in a strange kind of mood on Sunday. I mean, he was saying he was kind of faux satisfied by saying, you know, he had given everything that the package had. Um, you know, it, there was kind of a frustration to his words, but then also a contentment that, you know, he could do no more. Uh, so I think, you know, add to the fact that if Miguelo Oliveira had been there in those mixed conditions on the Aprilia, then you have to wonder what, he would have been capable of considering the miracles he worked in Indonesia last year. So I think, you know, it turned out, I mean, at the beginning of the weekend, we thought it was going to be an Aprilia show. Um, you know, I, I changed my fantasy team. I'm sure you guys did too, to try and slot either Alesh or Maverick in there. But um, yeah, it just didn't work out. And the second thing, um, I think, uh, you know, there's a few helmet companies that may need to work on the um, the efficiency of their visor and ventilation. Um, you know, it, it goes to prove that if you're a MotoGP rider, it can be ni quite nice taking a big endorsement deal for a slightly um, 
uh, I don't want to say obscure brand, but maybe less well known or less renowned, but then it can come by, back to bite you in the ass. And there were, you know, a couple of riders having to deal with all the crap that was flying off the track, as well as, you know, their visors misting up, which in 2023 and at the level of technical proficiency in MotoGP seems slightly hard to believe. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, another, another little observation from the Grand Prix. I mean, yeah, the, the the Aprilia thing is quite interesting because that bike is so stiff. Um, it's incredibly stiff. And that was one of the reasons why they were so difficult uh, in the wet. You ca- with a bike that stiff, it's really difficult to soften it off to be able to sort of, you know, create the mechanical grip in the water. And that seemed to be where um, the, the Aprilias were struggling. Yeah, and obviously um, Aprilia's struggles led to me struggling in the MotoGP Fantasy. Adam, you've already teed it up nicely there. So check out MotoGP Fantasy and uh, add yourself to the Paddock Pass Podcast League and uh, you'll be able to make sure that you're far more competitive than any of our efforts are. I think Argentina was a bit of a struggle for all of us, but uh, you know it's only two rounds in. There's still plenty of way left in it um, and you can make sure to get yourself signed up to compete with the four of us as well. The most frustrating thing in the world is that I had Bezeki and Alex Marquez in my team, but they were as my silver riders, not my gold riders. What a tit. <laughs> well, Who your gold I did riders something then? even more foolish than that, Neil. I did something even more foolish than that. I dropped Ducati as my manufacturer to bring in Aprilia. Oh, and uh, I, I, I did it because I had to do it to be able to bring in Maverick. And then it just ended up being a disaster. So... That's that's nothing. I dropped Alex Marquez and put in uh, uh, Taka Nakagami. <laughs> Well, it could have been I mean, worse. It no could have been like me that. last year, putting in putting in Mark for pretty much the whole season, even though I think he missed half of it. But uh, I'm I'm doing my best to keep uh, my team as up to date as possible through the opening few rounds, and even if it means making mistakes, at least I'll feel like I'm making the effort on it. So uh, check out MotoGP Fantasy and the Paddock Pass Podcast League for that. Also check out patreoncom forward slash Podcast for all of our latest news over the course of a Grand Prix weekend. We obviously have it where with the Paddock Notes show, David, Adam, and Neil get together to get everyone as up to date as possible after the debriefs and uh, all three of you are going to be on site in Coda next weekend as well so uh, we're going to have a lot of content all the way through that weekend we're also going to have as Adam has teased already some of the uh, interviews from Ducati as well we're going to make that into a full podcast but it's also going to be available on Patreon a little bit earlier for our Patreon supporters check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast as it is big thank you to KTM and to Renthal Street for supporting the podcast and uh, David Adam and Neil big thanks for joining on the show today to get everyone up to speed